Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink Code pink for freedom Code pink for peace Carly Town with the Divest from the War Machine campaign at Code Pink, and you're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, and let me be the first to welcome you to the year 2021. Um, if this is your first time joining us, Code Pink is a women's-led anti-war group that is organizing across the country to put an end to US-funded militarism around the world. We are here to challenge imperialism, capitalism, and war with the goal of creating a world of justice, peace, and equality. Achieving justice requires that each and every one of us joins together in solidarity and demands a better world. It requires us to understand that the struggle against US imperialism is also a struggle against police brutality in the United States and anti-immigrant animus. The anti-war movement is also a struggle for peace, and we can't have peace if we don't advocate for workers' rights, women's rights, environmental justice, and racial justice, just to name a few. So if you're listening to this show, you've already taken the first step in being part of a movement for all of these struggles. So before we get into our excellent interviews for today's show, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in the Senate and Congress over the past week. So it all started when President Donald Trump vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, which among other things, provides funding for the 2021 Pentagon budget. After President Trump vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, two very important things happened. So first, the House of Representatives chose to override Donald Trump's veto with over the two thirds majority needed. It should be noted that this is the first time um, in the Trump administration that Congress has been able to override any of Donald Trump's vetoes. And they chose to do it 
to approve a $740 billion Pentagon budget. So the second thing that happened on the same day was the House of Representatives also voted to expand COVID stimulus checks of $2,000 for many Americans. So this is all very important because then the Senate was expected to override Donald Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act, no problem. However, Senator Sanders and Markey decided to use this as an opportunity to block a Senate vote on the National Defense Authorization Act until Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell brought the $2,000 COVID stimulus check bill that just passed in the House to the floor of the Senate. So Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has, and did so far, refuse to bring that bill to the floor. And so, you know, true to the promise that they made, Senator Sandy and Sanders and Markey took to the Senate floor to block a vote on the must-pass National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, while this ordeal obviously has included really a complex game of Senate strategy, it has really made one thing exceedingly clear to anyone who's really even remotely paying attention, right? Um, it turns out that blocking a vote on must-pass legislation like the National Defense Authorization Act is a strategy which can generate a lot of attention and start to call into question really why we spend so much on the Pentagon budget every year while our representatives refuse to pass even meager support for working people, right? $2,000 one-time check is nothing compared to what's happening in other countries. Um, so to make this case pretty eloquently, let's take a listen to Senator Bernie Sanders last week, emphasizing the absurdity of claiming we don't have enough money for stimulus checks, while almost in the same breath, lawmakers approved a $740 billion Pentagon budget. Look, I fought and helped lead the fight for direct payments, and I, I wanted more. Uh, we got 600, and that will help a lot of people. But, Brett, uh, I was on the floor of the Senate today reading stories that came to my office from all over this country. I mean, we're talking about moms trying to feed their kids. We're talking about people worried about being thrown out on the street because they are faced with, with eviction. Uh, we got a really serious problem, 600 bucks. As President Trump has said, it's just not enough, not going to do it. Now, in terms of the debt, the debt is a serious issue. And you're right, we're talking about a whole lot of money. Uh, but I always find it amusing that sometimes the very same people who voted for a trillion and a half dollar tax break for the 1% in large corporations, uh, they didn't have a worry about the deficit uh, at that point. When it comes to uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in corporate welfare, these large profitable corporations, they don't worry about the deficit. We just voted, working on right now, the largest military budget in the history of this country, $740 billion. The Pentagon can't even do an independent audit. There's an enormous amount of waste and duplication in that budget, but no one worries about that. But when it comes to working families, to the mom and dad who are struggling to put food on the table for their kids, oh my God, we're worried about the deficit. So. Deficit is an issue, yeah. I agree. But I think this, at this moment, we've got to do the right thing for working families. That was Bernie Sanders making his case for $2,000 stimulus checks. Senator Sanders and Markey's decision to block a vote on the National Defense Authorization Act was historic and so important, which is why last week we called on everyone to do everything they could 
to pressure their, their senators to vote for $2,000 checks. Unfortunately, the majority of our senators caved and overrode Donald Trump's veto on the National Defense Authorization Act, which is why in 2021, as we begin this year, it's so important that we continue to build momentum around defunding the Pentagon budget. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit about today's show. First, we'll hear about an exciting new project to bring more young people into the movement from two of my colleagues at Code Pink, Danica and Mary. After, I'll talk with Stephen Sumler of the Security Policy Reform Institute about the National Defense Authorization Act. So without further ado, let's get right to these exciting interviews. This is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. I'm so excited to start off our show um, with Danica and Mary, who are going to be discussing a new initiative at Code Pink to um, revitalize and bring in more young people into the peace movement. So I'm going to pass it off to Danica and Mary. Hello, my name is Danica. I am the Yemen campaign coordinator for Code Pink. Um, I want to thank Carly for having me and Mary on to talk about the Peace Collective um, that we're starting at Code Pink. All the 20-somethings um, at Code Pink are getting together a Peace Collective that we hope to launch later this month. Um, and we kind of just want to talk about what it's about, what people can expect, how they sign up. Um, and I'll pass it over to Mary to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Thank you again to Carly for having us. Uh, my name is Mary Miller. I am 20 years old. I work at Code Pink writing and doing social media and some other things. I kind of do, do a lot. <laughs> but I'm working with Danica to start the um, youth collective. Um, so I'm 21. I turned 21 in October. Um, I just graduated from DePaul University. Um, and I spent a lot of my college career organizing in the peace movement. And when we're thinking about starting the Peace Collective, um, for young people who wanted to get involved in the peace movement and Code Pink specifically, um, I was thinking about and reflecting a lot on my time um, as a young person organizing in the peace movement, um, thinking about how I got started, um, where I kind of found my place, how I found my place. And I don't think I <laughs> was able to remember a specific moment where I became like an anti-imperialist or, um, you know, I don't remember the exact moment I started to like hate Raytheon or whatever, or the moment I became an anti-capitalist. But I, I, I think it was a series of events that made me um, constructively angry, maybe. Um, but I do remember the, the moment that I was invited into the peace community, I'd say. Um, I was taking a class uh, called Organizing for Political and Social Justice. And it was a lot about just learning how to organize around the things that you care about. And one of the first um, assignments that we had to do was I had to find an organization 
in the Chicago area that I had the same values as that I would like to work with in the future. And I had to like have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with one of their main organizers. Um, so I did that. I had to set up a phone call um, with um, their lead organizer. And for me, this was Hassan al Tayeb, who now is um, working at FCNL. Um, but uh, I was just, I remember sitting on the, in the hallway of my dorm room <laughs> um, and I thought the call was gonna be about like his work, what he does, um, why he cared about the war in Yemen, but it was more so like him asking me why I cared enough to, you know, reach out to him, why I thought that these issues were important, why I thought, you know, capitalism and anti-imperialism were like intertwined with one another um, in certain ways. And so I felt really um, invited in. It felt like a very warm place for me to find community. And eventually that turned into um, an organization on DePaul's campus. It was, it was just a bunch of like, <laughs> uh teenagers and 20-something college students who were dedicated to the same issues but were also like a very warm loving funny goofy uh bonded community of people and i think that's where i learned to connect the issues that revolve around peace even more because you know our <clears throat> existence as a group of people kind of defied everything that uh, a capitalist society wanted us to be. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to start a peace collective uh, for young people at Code Pink. And I, I don't think, um, <clears throat> in my experience, I think the peace movement could do a better job at um, connecting the issues that are important to young people, like climate change, like healthcare. Um, I think, <laughs> most young people who care about things have already made these connections. They know that, um, <laughs> you know, we hate insurance companies and weapons manufacturers for the same reason, because they profit off of human suffering in one way or another. So, you know, I think young people have already made those connections. And I think it's up to people in the peace movement to invite people in and build community with one another and not to be um, corny, but I think my theory of change uh, kind of revolves around every little interaction and every little relationship you build with people changes the, the world in one way or another. Um, and I just wanted to build that sort of community with young people at Code Pink, um, with the people I work with, with people that we're bringing in through this collective. Um, and I'm very excited about the different aspects we'll have. And um, after Mary talks for a little bit, I'll kind of get into, you know, what this is exactly going to look like. Um, but yeah, with that, I'm just going to pass it over to Mary. Um, you know, why did, there was like a conversation internally at Code Pink, you know, why this might be a good idea. So, you know, can you tell me your sort of aspirations for it? What do you think? What do you hope that other young people get out of this um, experience and what do you hope to get out of it? How you got involved in activism also. 
Sure, thank you, Danica. So, like you, um, when I try to look back on my my youth, you could say, um, I don't know a specific reason or thing that made me interested in peace activism or like made me anti-war. It was, I think, a lot of little things all kind of coming together, and um, I think when I really started getting into this was when I was in high school and I was like. 16 I think around that age the, the later half of high school and I took AP US history and then AP world history I love history and I kind of started to realize like all of the terrible things America has done and I was like wow this is this is bad you know and I think that was kind of what what really started it but I think I've always kind of been inclined toward peace I'm I've always been a very sensitive person and I never want anything that would, you know, put violence or harm into the world. And I think it was around that age, though, that I kind of started really getting into this. And I took a gap year after high school. And in the fall and winter of 2018, I interned with Code Pink, just kind of by chance. I totally did not ever expect that I would get an internship with somewhere as amazing as Code Pink, especially without any kind of like degree or experience. So I'm very thankful that they took me and now I'm here again. But that was when I guess I started getting more serious into activism. And um, again, we've spoken about this internally Code Pink, but um, I really think it's really great. And I kind of envy that uh, your university, Danica, has an activist community. Um, I go to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and I love my school. I so miss being on campus right now. But um, that's one thing that I don't really love about my school is we do not have any kind of activist community. We have a few like political clubs and things, but it's just not, not very much of a thing at my school. So I think that has really, even if there was an activist community at my school, I still would want to be involved with the Peace Collective. But that has certainly um, pushed me towards this more, is wanting that kind of activist community that I did not get at my school. So that's certainly maybe a bit more of a selfish thing, but that's one thing that I certainly am hoping to get out of this, is a community of people around my age that have the same values as me and the same dreams and wishes for our world as me. And um, I certainly want to see more young people in the peace movement because there really are not that many and there should be a lot because it's so so I mean war and militarization and imperialism and all these things obviously they impact every single person on earth but they impact young people in a unique way I think and I think that you know we need more people to realize that and to get involved with working against that because I mean, I don't mean to be like alarming or anything, but I don't think our world can really survive this path that we're going on with climate change and just this endless war. And I think our generation has to be the one to stop it because clearly the older generations are not. When you look at, you know, Congress and the people in power, they're not doing anything. So we need to be the ones to stop it. So. My hope for the Peace Collective is to get more young people involved and make some change, I guess. <laughs> I know that's a little broad, but um, yes, I just want, want to get a good group going and see what we can do.
Yeah, I like how you differentiate between, you know, campuses with large um, activist communities and then universities without. And of course, the peace collective is for anyone, regardless of, you know, if they um, have gone to college or not in college or doing whatever they're doing. Um, you know, I think the emphasis of the Peace Collective is like, this is for anyone starting anywhere, no matter if you've been doing activism, like peace activism forever, if you've been involved in, you know, like healthcare advocacy, that kind of thing. This is for everything. This is um, an anti-capitalist, anti-Zionist, anti-imperialist, generally Peace Collective, you know, it's um, recognizing that investing in harm abroad takes away things that we could have you know there's no they don't talk about austerity when they're talking about bombs or weapons or uh, wars they only talk about austerity when they're when we want health care when we want um economic support during a global pandemic um austerity when people need housing um, so I think that's what this Peace Collective is going to talk about, you know, how do we, starting from wherever you are, you don't have to, you don't have to have read theory or anything like that to be a part of this. This is for everyone who wants to be a part of it. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm very excited for what this is going to be and, um, building that that community um but i <clears throat> i'll i can kind of get into um what exactly the peace collective is going to look like and i i don't think we're going to know exactly because you know we're code pink we're not top down um this is going to be whatever people want to make of it um this is going to be an experience that the people who join kind of decide what they get out of it um so it's going to look like a few things. We're going to, uh, our slogan is going to be everything that the war machine hates, be everything that the war machine hates. Um, I think it's going to be, so on the activism side, um, it's going to look like teaming up with Code Pink's Divest team, with Carly and Cody and Kelsey, um, and we'll kind of be pulled in the Peace Collective will be pulled into those campaigns when we're needed, when it's turbulent, when um, there's going to be a lot of learning opportunities there for us to learn from each other um, and how to organize for a better future. Um, it's so that on the activism side, that's what it's going to look like. We're going to be teaming up with Code Pink campaigns um, throughout the year. And also it's going to, there's going to be an element of imagining together, you know, imagining what a better future can look like. Um, we'll have a book club. The first um, book we're going to read is called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, um, where the author kind of, she talks about, um, emergent strategy, but it's, <laughs> it's, I think it's a very, positive way to imagine change. I think it's really easy in the work we do to get very down in the dumps and think that, you know, we're going up against the war machine. They have billions of dollars. Um, 
they control politicians. Um, so we're going up against a lot. How do we remain positive? How do we not become nihilistic? Um, I think that's a super important focus that the Peace Collective is going to have. Um, so bonding uh, through book clubs, movie nights, that kind of thing. Um, and imagining what this world can look like together through, you know, little interactions, um, relationships that we build with one another. Um, and Mary, can you, I mean, like, what are you most excited about? Is it building relationships? Is it the book clubs? Like, what are you most looking forward to? That's hard to say because I'm pretty excited in general about this. Um, I certainly was excited for the book club because I I read I, I I want to read more, but I read a decent amount, I guess. And I always want to talk about the books that I read, but then like no one else that I know has read them, so I am certainly excited for that. But I think probably I'm most excited for just building relationships and connections and having like a camaraderie, I guess. Um, these past nine months have been uh, pretty lonely for most people, myself included. You know, we're, we're in our houses all day long and I don't, it's not like when I'm at school and I, you know, I see my friends walking around on campus and I just say hi to them, you know. So I think it will be nice to make some connections, make some friends and just, you know, Again, like I said, just to be with people who have the same values as me and the same outlook as me. Yeah, I think that's what I'm most excited for too. Just making that collective a collective um, in the truest sense of the word. Um, but we should have a page up on Code Pink's website soon about, you know, with all this information there, a little bit about me. Um, I'm more so just going to be the facilitator, but um, you'll by facilitator I mean you'll get emails from me if you sign up um, about the meetings we're going to have. But you know this is about all of us um, as a group and how we can learn from one another, how we can learn from our elders and people who have been in the peace movement for a really long time, doing amazing, great, creative work. Um, and so if you're interested, if you're listening to the, our radio show and you're interested in signing up, uh, please email me, um, D-A-N-A-K-A at codepink.org. Um, and just let me know that you wanna be in the Peace Collective and I'll reach out to you and we can have a great conversation about um, what you wanna get out of this. Cause ultimately like I was a student organizer, I know that if you're young and you are doing this work already, you're probably super busy, um, regardless of what you're doing. And, um, you know, ultimately, like, there's not going to be specific time requirements. This is going to be, you know, whatever you want to get out of it. Um, feel free to step to the margins when you need to um, and take that time for yourself. And we're going to make the most out of this experience together. Um, so thank you, Mary, for coming to talk with me about the Peace Collective. Um, and I will just thank Carly again for having us on the radio show. Thank you, Danica. I am super excited about this. And thank you again, Carly. And I hope to meet some folks soon.
So that was Danica and Mary with an excellent interview about the new initiative from Code Pink um, to involve more young people. Thank you so much. We're now going to take a short musical break and welcome the new year with um, a song that's very appropriate uh, titled 2021 by Vampire Weekend. Twenty twenty one, will you think about me? I could wait a year, but I shouldn't wait three. Boy, I don't wanna be. Boy, mm -mm -mm -mm. twenty twenty one, will you think about us? Copper goes green, steel beams go rust. Boy, it's a matter of. Weekend, and this is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Now I'm going to interview Stephen Sumler from the Grassroots Think Tank Security Policy Reform Institute. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Before we get into um, some of the conversation we're going to have today about funding for war, um, I just wanted to quickly talk a little bit more about the Security Policy Reform Institute because I think it's a really unique institution. Um, so could you just give us a little background on the think tank you run and its unique funding model? Sure, it's a Security Policy Reform Institute or SPRY is a foreign policy think tank that was founded by me and a few others about two years ago in Beirut uh, where we had all met and we decided to look at the, a conventional think tank and just do the opposite of everything they do. Their funding model being grassroots funded, um, politics being sort of forthright and saying, no, we're making foreign policy for the working class. This isn't about some vague notion of national security. So very explicit and honest about what we're trying to do here with our research. Um, and I think the larger part is just being sort of internationally minded because we were founded in a place and we all of us spent time in a place where uh, U.S. foreign policy is basically domestic policy for millions of people. So I think uh, having that empathy and having a grassroots model is the only way you can take really think tanks seriously. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's really important for people to know. We, we talked um, a couple of weeks ago with Jan Weinberg about the way that think tanks are funded. And so I think that 
makes a lot of sense to people who joined us for that webinar as well. Um, so thank you for that background. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more at the end about how you can get connected to this think tank and learn more about Stephen's work. Um, before we also get into more of the questions, I also wanted to remind everyone who's joining us um, on the webinar on the Zoom, um, if you have any questions for Stephen during the talk, you can go and put them in the chat box. And at the end, we'll have a little bit of time to take some questions from people in the audience. Um, okay, so let's get into kind of the meat of why we're here today. Um, so we're really here to talk about how our representatives voted on the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, so before we get into that and, and how they voted, can you just remind our audience what the NDAA is um, and what is the process by which this funding is approved? Because it can get a little bit complicated. Sure. Uh, so defense or military spending is funded just like every other, you know, government thing. Basically, there's uh, um, the president releases his annual budget in February, and then the Congress messes around with it, adds amendments, and then each uh, branch of government or each uh, sort of branch of the legislative uh, thing there, the Senate and the House develop their own versions, and then they produce a conference report. So really, members of Congress vote twice on it, um, on this NDAA, which sets out uh, the amount of money that can be spent uh, on the military each year. So like, there's like extraneous accounts too that are related to national security, but not in that. But mm -hmm. the NDAA is what you wanna pay attention to for basically congressional disposition towards military spending, because it's not attached to any other bills. It's just, it delimits how much you can spend on the military per year. And then there's an appropriation cycle that mm -hmm. sort of takes that framework and then fills in the gaps. So basically president proposes and Congress disposes. Um, and then there's two cycles, the policy process, uh, which is the authorizations process, that's the NDAA. And then there's the actual like kind of fill in the blanks. But what you wanna look at for military spending is the NDAA. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, that's, that's a good kind of framework for us to start off this conversation with. Um, and also on that note, before we talk more about um, what Congress just voted on, earlier this year during the summer, um, when both chambers of Congress were proposing um, the initial NDAA, representatives um, uh, Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan in the House and Senator Sanders and Markey um, in the Senate introduced an amendment to the NDAA that would have cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. Um, so can you tell, how did that vote turn out and why or how was this kind of a historic vote for Congress? Uh, glad you brought that up. The vote, uh, which was uh, brought in sort of, it was a mirror, mirroring sort of legislative initiative where the Senate had its own version for its version of the NDAA and the House had its, its own version for its own NDAA. And basically the amendment, as you said, would cut Pentagon spending by 10%. So of the 740 authorized, that'd be 74 billion. And the beauty of the amendment, I think, is that it was written in such a way where those funds wouldn't just disappear. They would remain public funds, but be shifted into another account. Uh, specifically, it went through this treasury grant program, which would then admit it to, you know, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Interior, or whoever does sort of like infrastructure stuff, and then EPA for environmental cleanup. Um, that vote did not go well, uh, even though 
there was a poll um, and members of Congress should have received word uh, of this before they voted. But 70% of Democratic and Democratic leaning voters, according to a poll from Data for Progress, said they would approve such a measure because, I mean, they're probably morally against military spending and their life is probably extremely difficult as, it, as are hundreds of millions of other people's are right now who could use that 74 billion in social spending. And one thing that I think, um, I hope to see something like that again, but with a slightly or considerably higher number than 10%. And also I think during the time in the lead up and the following, uh, it should be marketed more as a jobs program than a national security or foreign policy thing, because I think that's the main selling point of converting um, money for the DOD and converting it to social programs. I mean, for the non, uh, you know, unusual observer of foreign policy, I guess, because if Sanders, if that had, amendment had passed and all that money had went to healthcare, it would have created 574,000 jobs over that same investment in defense. So if you're investing public funds to create jobs, defense is the absolute worst thing you can do. Healthcare is like twice as much, education is even more. So mm -hmm. I think we can use that to sort of rally support um, in the lead up to the vote. And after the vote, I want like newspaper, um, um, you know, journalists to, you know, be able to write newspaper headlines that say, look, your member of Congress just voted against creating a half a million jobs. And okay. one more just point to wrap up this rant is that <laughs> doing it in that way sort of encourages you to be more bold. So if a 10% conversion created, you know, a half a million jobs, the 20% one, I mean, ostensibly it's more radical because it takes more out of the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's also like, yeah, this is a bill that, or this is an amendment that can be passed and it would create over a million jobs. And if you want to, you know, up it again, double it again, you know, two million jobs. So I think there's a, there was a real beauty to the amendment and um, it's a pity that it didn't pass, but at least with uh, that vote and with the research I did recently, we can kind of tell who, who are the members of Congress we can believe in and work with and who are the ones who aren't so good and rant. No, <laughs> right? No, no, I think that's so, so important. I'm really happy that you brought that up. Right, because I think that um, one of the most common arguments against cutting funding for the Pentagon budget is that it creates jobs, which is true, right? It does create jobs, but that argument is um, without understanding that within the context of, well, what if we spent that money on, for example, like you said, healthcare or education, or for example, a just transition, uh, because we're talking about the fact that we need a Green New Deal because you know, the climate crisis is so real right now. Um, so that's, that's really important. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, and, you know, on that note, right, um, I did want to talk now a little bit more about um, what was just passed by Congress in the, the final NDAA. Um, so can you kind of help us break down some of the contents of the bill? Because like we just discussed, there were some amendments initially that didn't get passed. Um, but what, what actually did get passed in the final NDAA? So my favorite two amendments from the summer were the one that you brought up earlier, the conversion amendment mm -hmm. by Sanders in, in the Senate and Pocahontas in the House. Um, and my other favorite one was just in the House, Ilhan Omar introduces to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan within a year. So it, mm -hmm. it sort of built in like um, a graceful way to withdraw from the country. Because, I mean, I hope we have, we're able to have this conversation more about, you know, 
there's graceful and ungraceful ways to with, withdraw from countries to dismantle empire. So I think, I think she nailed it in that bill um, and both failed. What the NDAA did do, um, which just passed the Congress, is that it, it did sort of the opposite of those two things. It increased military spending from the year before. And if you're sort of keeping track, we're now over 130 billion from where we were at at Obama's last military budget. So we're up there and there's also limits on, uh, it's, it delimits how many troops can be withdrawn at a time from Germany, from Afghanistan, from South Korea. It basically entrenches empire and prevents Trump from withdrawing troops, um, which is like pretty much the only time in his four years he's been right about stuff is when he's just trying to withdraw troops. Or I shouldn't say right, but just happened to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, adopting the right policy decisions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Democrats really like with, uh, I really decided to look at Democrats here because, I mean, one is Trump's budget and two, I mean, they were further off with their public opinion. I mean, again, Democrat and Democrat leaning voters would, would, you know, vote the opposite way that mm -hmm. members, that their representatives in Congress did. Right. And we are going to obviously get to why there's that disconnect. I think everyone has a, a good sense of why. Um, but also um, in this final NDA, you said right, we, we voted, they voted to increase um, spending to $740.5 billion um, dollars for the 2021, for the year of 2021. How does that, just to put that in perspective for people, how does that compare to military budgets that we've passed um, in the past couple of years and also kind of throughout history? Uh, I mean, since the Korean War, um, mm -hmm. we've had maybe one or two budgets that's been higher than now. I mean, peak Iraq war, and I think like maybe one other. Um, so we're out there. It depends on which sort of uh, budgets you count. Like if you count the nuclear stuff, if you count sort of uh, the different accounts within DOD. But I mean, in terms of like where we're at, I mean, we're higher than the Korean War and what we were spending in the Korean War, same with Vietnam, and same with Reagan's in, you know, infamous military buildup of the 1980s when he was talking about Star Wars and shit. Like, we're really, I mean, they say, you know, Medicare for all is pie in the sky, but like 740 billion, which is more than the next 10 countries combined. We spend more on police than Russia does on its entire military. I mean, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of people at the same time going, you know, what the fuck and organizing to change the direction of this thing. Right. And it's it's such an enormous number. Right. I remember we had some conversations with staffers from on, in Congress, like most people don't can't even comprehend that amount of money. Like, what are we actually using it for? Um, and we'll get to that. So now that we've talked a little bit about the NDA and what's in it. Um, let's kind of move on to this report that you put out um, about who voted for the final NDAA and the significance of their votes. Um, so first, what was the final vote breakdown? Um, and are there any notable no or yes votes that we should be aware of? Um, I, I think, you know, it passed overwhelmingly in both chambers in the House is uh, 300, I have it written down here, 335 to 78. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Senate, it was also a blowout. It was like uh, 87 to, or like 86 to 13 with like one abstaining or something. Um, but in each, um, in each chamber, more Republicans voted against the bill than Democrats. And they had their own reasons. I mean, some of them, I mean, may have, may align with ours, probably not. Um, so that, that was really the overall breakdown is it passed overwhelmingly. And in terms of uh, 
notable yeses and nos. Um, probably who you'd expect. I should say that uh, I know like at this time on Twitter, it seems pretty in vogue to be uh, criticizing AOC and the squad, but um, mm. I, I think, and I think that's totally fine, but I also would urge some politeness because they are the best shots we've got in Congress. They've voted perfectly for the, for the major votes that I kept track of, the last year's NDA, the House in, in final version, mm. the Omar amendment, obviously, uh, AOC's Twitch amendment, um, uh, Pocon's amendment, and the two votes for this year's NDA. They voted perfectly, and there's only about four more of those who, who do that. I think uh, Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard are two, and then um, two names I didn't even recognize, embarrassingly. And in the Senate, uh, it was just sort of six out of the seven um, uh, recipients of uh, military in like military industrial cash mm. um the bottom seven recipients six of them voted no and it's pretty much who you'd expect uh senator sanders elizabeth warren cory booker um marky merkley um so it's really just like who you'd expect really and then and then some uh names uh that i'm forgetting and not doing them justice but right those are yeah, people you I can work with yeah, right. I mean, those are obviously people we should keep an eye on. Obviously, the people who voted to cut the Pentagon budget by 10% and then also voted no on the NDAA, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's a kind of discipline that's important. Um, so also, though, right, let's talk a little bit more about this correlation between voting yes on military spending and campaign contributions from weapons contractors. Um, you just spoke a little about in the Senate. Um, did those same findings hold true in the House? Yeah, it wasn't quite as bad in the Senate uh, or in the uh, House as it was in the Senate. In the Senate, I found that um, comparing Democrats who voted yes versus no on this you know, massive military budget, those who voted yes received on average six times more war industry cash than those who voted no. In the House, there's only, only, only four times as much. So you can say that like... Uh, yeah, there's a larger problem here um, that even if you took the bottom quartile of recipients in the house, it would still be like 70% voting yes or something. But I think the value in sort of making this, uh, making these sorts of studies is that we, it provided sort of empirical proof from what all of us knew already and what we've been yelling about for years even, you know, and people have done this study before, but I always think it's useful to re-up the number, refresh it, make sure you're right. Because I mean, you can't be accused of hyperbole then. You're really just saying, you know, in response, no, we're just saying loudly what's happening, just <laughs> corruption, you know? So yeah, uh, yeah it, it, the votes, uh, I wasn't expecting the, uh, the votes to be that split, like six times in the Senate and four times uh, in the House. Um, and I think, you know, Ultimately, I, I think um, the value of the study is figuring out, you know, who are the people we can talk to to get the good votes and who, who are the people who take so much money from the war industry that they're too tied to that Zeppelin where it's better just to let them drift off. And it's not like we forget about them or the people in their district. It's just our attitude changes from, okay, legislative engagement on the Hill for certain bills versus um, political engagement like we're going to find a primary challenger for this person because if we're going to get a, a positive vote from that district, it's not going to come from a person who's, you know, in the, you know, the top half of war industry cash recipients. We have these companies that make a profit 
from going to war and then they can also spend a portion, just a portion of their profit to make sure that they continue to get more and more profit every year. So basically it's just a really great return on their very small investment every year, right? So I think that's a really important conversation to have um, yeah. and I appreciate it, it's really interesting. Um, and so on that note, I'm wondering, um, you know, is there anything else you wanted to end with? Um, and how can people follow and support your work? Um, I mean, I think following Code Pink's work is really important because, I mean, we do uh, a lot of stuff advising, you know, advocacy, but not the real work that needs to be done in terms of the organizing. But I hope, you know, as we continue to get funded, and if you want to support us, patreon.com slash spry, S-P-R-I, um, you can do so there. Um, and we're working on other uh, fundraising platforms. But I think, I think the main thing you can do is sort of uh, try not to let these results uh, you know, get you down or, or get too cynical, because I think that's, uh, I think that's sort of a ruling class strategy is to sort of make people zone out of politics and just sort of throw their hands up. Um, so I'd encourage you to stay involved. I think, yeah, I mean, CodePank has all the resources in terms of like it networks well. I really, I mean, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable flattery. It's just, you know, you, you guys just do a tremendous job. Um, and I also write from uh, this newsletter called Speaking Security on Substack that you can follow um, once or twice a week with just sort of breakdowns of issues that I think are timely and important. And I try to make them, uh, I try to use a graph in everyone or a chart of some sort and uh, basically deliver information I think is important in the least number of words possible. Perfect. Well, I know a lot of people would appreciate that. Um, but also, you know, some of the some of the resources that you mentioned, right, if people want to go to codepink.org slash divest, you can find um, we have a pledge on our website asking congressional representatives actually demanding that our congressional representatives stop taking campaign contributions from weapons manufacturers, um, which like we've discussed is just the tip of the iceberg, but it's an important first step. I just want to thank Stephen. Thank you again for joining us on the program today. Um, and if you have listened to this episode and agree that we need to take on the US war machine and want to get more involved in our Divest from the War Machine campaign, you can always contact us at divest at codepink.org to learn more about our municipal, university, and congressional campaigns to take on weapons manufacturers in our own communities. Or if you're interested in learning more about our resources, our current campaigns, and more ways you can get involved, um, you can check out codepink.org slash divest. There you'll find all of our resources that we have um, and more information about all of our current campaigns. Either way, if you want to email us at divest at codepink.org or visit our website at codepink.org slash divest, I would be extremely happy to talk to you. So that about wraps up our program for today. Again, this is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Until next time, peace. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more, it's blood for oil We know there's a link, they say Cold War We 
trained him to be a man When our enemy was not Iraq but Iran They, they feed you lies to want you to think They say code terror, we say code pink They feed you lies to want you to think They say code terror, we say code pink Code war, we say code pink.